Hi, everyone, and welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who've built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today, I have a author, a businessman, a marketer, a CEO, Callum Chase, who is a notable leader, thought leader in what is being called economic singularity and also the the sort of rise of artificial general intelligence, which could be our replacement in this world and potentially driving us to a ruinous future or perhaps a utopia that only Star Trek has imagined. Prior to some of the books that he's written, as I mentioned, Callum has had an amazing career in business. And, you know, one of the things that is always great when you hear about people who have had a, a lifestyle uh, and a career like his is to sort of explore, you know, why that transition. So Callum, thanks for joining us. Um, maybe you can walk us through some of your early life and sort of your business career, just to, to get a, a feeling for who you are before the author. Sure. Hi, Carlos. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm 58 years old in a few days, so I will try to keep this brief. <laughs> um, I, from a very early age, read a lot of science fiction. And for some reason, when I was quite young, I knew I wanted to study philosophy at Oxford. I didn't really know what else I wanted to do in my life. And I achieved that ambition, um, which I was very pleased about, and discovered that science fiction is really just philosophy and fancy dress. So it all sort of tied up and all made made sense as a whole. When I finished my degree, I didn't know what I wanted to do next. Um, I went into journalism because I thought that would be interesting and fun. And I worked for a couple of years with the BBC. But... I found that reporting what other people were doing was a bit unsatisfactory. I wanted to do my own things. So I then went into business and spent five years as a marketer. And back in those days, the Internet existed. I didn't really know anything about it. The web did not exist. And so marketing was an entirely different discipline than than what it is now. Uh, After five years doing that, I did an MBA and then went into strategy consulting. And I did that for 15 years. Uh, I had my own firm, I was a partner in a boutique, and I spent five years as a director of KPMG. And in that 15 years, I reviewed somewhere around 100 different companies, essentially doing mini strategy reviews of each of them. What I did was a thing called commercial due diligence, which is when a company buys another company or when a private equity firm invests in in another company, they will have lawyers and uh, accountants crawl all over the target to find out whether there's any problems with it. If they're smart, they will also have strategy consultants look at the market that the company's in and try to figure out what they should do with the company once they've bought it. And that's called commercial due diligence. So that's what I did for about 15 years, which was fascinating. I really enjoyed it. And then I, at the end of that, I, I hopped over back onto the client side and became commercial director and then CEO of a series of startups and turnarounds. And the last one was a company in, a, in an industry I knew nothing about before, which was which was weeding. It was a company launching a new way of killing weeds without using herbicides. In 2011, I retired from that, and and I don't play golf, so I wasn't sure what to do next. Uh, I set up a small property business, which uh, is great. That runs itself, more or less. And I decided to pursue my hobby, uh, which was artificial intelligence, and specifically the impact of AI on all of us as individuals, as societies and economies. I'd always been interested in that since I was young. As I mentioned, I've always been a science fiction reader. And I've always assumed that eventually humans would invent really intelligent machines, machines that are smarter than us. But I always thought that would happen thousands of years into the future, 
when I was long dead. And in 1999, I came across Ray Kurzweil, who I'm sure many of your listeners will know about. Ray is a genius. Uh, he's now a director of engineering at Google. And he's written a series of books about how Moore's Law, the tremendously powerful growth in the power of computers, doubling in power every 18 months, means that we will soon have machines which have all the processing power, doesn't necessarily mean the intelligence, but the processing power of a human brain. And then a few years after that, they'll have all the processing power of all the human brains on the planet. And Kurzweil said, this means inevitably we will create a superintelligence. Now, Kurzweil is relentlessly optimistic and for a long time just refused to acknowledge that there were any potential downsides to this. When I read his book, uh, Are We Spiritual Machines? in 1999, I thought, what a fantastic vision of the world. But I can see a lot of downsides, a lot of potential downsides of this. Just the transition between before superintelligence and after superintelligence is going to be very turbulent. So I got really interested in that idea and spent a long time uh, finding out whatever I could about it. And I wrote a, a novel in 2000, which was really terrible. When I retired in 2011 from, from my previous business career, uh, I had more time to, to pursue these ideas. And I rewrote that book. And I like to think it's not terrible anymore. And it's called Pandora's Brain. And then I wrote a couple of nonfiction books about, about the impact of artificial intelligence. And it's, and it's become my new career. Uh, and I love it. I'm doing the thing that I'm really fascinated by. For quite a long time, nobody else was interested. Uh, I have a bunch of close friends I go walking with several times a year. And I've been banging on at them about uh, superintelligence and automation for 15 years. And they tolerated me for a little while and then pat me on the head and said, right, now let's talk about something else. And in the last two or three years, since 2015, really, suddenly the world's woken up and everybody else is now writing and talking about these things. And, and my friends are, s are slightly astonished by that. So there you go. In a nutshell, that's Callum. Well, that's a very good uh, summary with a lot of nuggets for us to explore. I think one of the things that I, it, that is interesting from a chronology point of view is that it sounds like in 2000, when you were writing the, the elements of Pandora's brain, it was also the same time that you wrote the co-wrote the Internet Startup Bible, which presumably was based upon your, your 15 years of looking at 100 different companies. And mm. maybe you can, you know, before we start going into some of the areas of passion of yours at the moment which around around AI, we could focus a little bit about the learnings from that era you know, and what, what the Internet Startup Bible's core lessons were. And for the listeners in, of this podcast that are focusing on building their companies, what are the things that you have leveraged from that on sure. top of what you've done with uh, the, the work that you've done recently on AI? Yeah. So the Internet Startup Bible, as you say, that was written and published in 2000, and it was really about the dot-com boom, um, which, of course, became the dot-com bust. And then there was a long fallow period before the web came back very strongly in, in business. And at that time, in 2000, it looked as if the world was going to be taken over instantaneously by, by the web. Now, my the, the reason why I wrote that book, the reason why I was actually asked by Random House to, to, to write that book with some, with some colleagues, was that we, my, my firm, I was working at the strategy firm, had reviewed a lot of media companies which were going through the disruption, the digital disruption process. Somebody first showed me the web in 1994 and said, we don't know what this thing is for, but we are pretty confident it's going to have a big impact on our business. This was a major publishing organization. And very, very quickly, it became clear that the web was a brilliant place to do classified advertising. 
by which I mean advertising jobs, houses and cars particularly. So if you were a, a local newspaper publisher or if you were a business to business trade magazine publisher, you depended very heavily on classified ads. People would pay you quite a lot to appear in your back pages. And because the web is searchable in a way that a hard copy paper isn't, the web was a great place to do classified ads. And the traditional publishers had this problem. There were startup companies offering classified ads online, and they were offering them very cheaply. At the time, in the mid-90s, uh, people were still happy to be in the local papers and the, and the trade magazines because that's where the eyeballs were. That's where the audience was. But it was clear the audience was going to migrate to the web because it was such a powerful way of, of finding the thing you want. So did they buy these startup companies, which were offering themselves for sale at an exorbitant rate? Did they start up a new business uh, doing classified ads online? Or did they just kind of hope that it would go away or hope that it wouldn't be successful, hope that the transition to online wouldn't happen? And it's a very, very it was a very hard decision for them because they made a lot of money in the offline classified advertising and there was not much money to be made in the new world. So. They, they face the traditional choice of the, uh, of the company that's in danger of being disrupted. Do you cannibalize your business? Do you murder your own children? Do you eat your own babies? Uh, it, an awful decision for executives to make. Most of them said, we just can't do it. We can't kill our own existing golden egg laying goose in order to set up businesses in this new online area. Our clients will take the new much lower prices and we will lose our revenue. So most of them didn't. So local newspapers are much, much smaller, less powerful organizations than they were. And trade magazines, if you look at uh, magazines like Computer Weekly today, they're a tiny sliver of what they used to be. And classified advertising has indeed all migrated online and quite a lot of it is actually free. Yeah. So I was trying to help these companies work through that, that conundrum, what, what to do, how to, how to migrate online keep the uh, existing businesses alive as long as possible and try and own the new space as well. I mean, in some ways, this is a great transition to talk about economic singularities because it seems like in some ways the, the, the premise of some, some of that work was around keeping some things from dying off in a world where a lot of the ways that they were thinking were changing so quickly that they were dying off. And the, the idea of a singularity, especially as you bring it up with an economic singularity, is in effect that same thing, but on a far bigger scale. So maybe this is a good transition point for you to walk our, our listeners through what is a singularity, what is a tech singularity, and what is an economic singularity. Sure. So a singularity is simply the superlative of transformation. It's the biggest possible transformation you can have, and it's borrowed from maths and physics. Uh, where it's a point in a process where a variable becomes infinite. And the classic example is a black hole. At the center of a black hole, mass is infinite. And the normal rules of physics just stop working. Everything breaks down. You're into a new world. So it's a, it's a superlative for transformation. For quite a long time, people have talked about the technological singularity. And generally speaking, that's understood to be the arrival of superintelligence. So we create an artificial general intelligence a machine with all the cognitive abilities of an adult human. And because machines can be improved, and you know at the moment they are being improved under Moore's law, doubling the, in performance every 18 months. And when, when the first AGI arrives, that, that process will speed up because the AGI will improve itself. So you'll quickly have a superintelligence. Lots of debate about how long that process will take, but before very long, humans will be the second smartest species on the planet. 
And that's either very, very good for us or very, very bad for us, depending on whether we manage to make sure that the first one really likes humanity and really understands us. So that's the technological singularity. What's becoming increasingly clear is that there's a strong likelihood, we don't know this for sure, but a strong likelihood that there's another singularity that will happen before that, which I call the economic singularity. And that is the likelihood that machines will take all the jobs, the machines will do all the jobs that humans currently do, and we won't invent enough new jobs that they can't do to keep us all in work, or rather all in paid employment. And so we're going to have to have a new type of economy, possibly a new type of society, one in which we've decoupled income from jobs. Now, some people worry about this economic singularity depriving us of meaning, and I don't worry about that. I think retired people and aristocrats, who are two groups of people who don't work and don't seem to die of existential despair, they prove that we don't need to do jobs in order to have meaning in our lives. And after all, it surely can't be the pin pinnacle of human fulfillment to be a parcel deliverer for Amazon or to be an actuary or to be somebody who cleans out sewers. All perfectly good jobs, but you know that doesn't define the humans who do those things. There are lots of things that we can do if we don't have to do jobs for a living. And in a, a, a world in which machines do all the jobs and humans get on with the important business of life, which is playing and learning and exploring and having fun, that's a good world. That's the world we should aim for. The big problem with the economic singularity is income. How do we provide sufficient income for everybody when they're not when they're not working for a living and not just a basic income? I mean, one of the several problems with the idea of the universal basic income is that it's basic and we do not all want to live on a basic income. We want a good, generous income. So one of the things that uh, is exciting about talking to a science fiction author is that you can reference other science fiction universes to, to try to address these questions. Um, I'm a fan of Star Trek. Uh, and one of the things that you see in the movies is some implementation of universal basic income with uh, the focus of the the utopia, which you would argue the Star Trek universe is a utopia and Star Wars is a dystopian future, um, is around exploration and doing other things um, which humans are very adept at doing. Maybe you can walk us through from your science fiction hat on before we go into science fact and, and resume that conversation from there. From a science fiction point of view, what do you think Star Trek has gotten right in terms of universal basic income and sort of how to repurpose human beings? So Star Trek is a, a terrific metaphor for the positive outcome of the, of, the, of the economic singularity. Like most science fiction, it completely ducks the question of what happens when you get superintelligence. Uh, they have super you know super intelligent machines but they don't show all the enormous ramifications of that so they 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 dodge that issue but what they have is a society where anything you want physically you can have because there are these matter replicators as they call them so if you want a cup of tea you just press a button and the machine create creates you a cup of tea uh, it's never made terribly explicit about whether it's doing it with 3D printing or nanotechnology or what, what the technology is, but uh, it, it just, uh, it, you can have whatever you want and there's no cost. And that is the world, in a sense, that we should be aiming for. We should be aiming for a world in which machines are so efficient and so powerful that we don't have to pay for anything because anything we want is effectively free. Energy is free, uh, cars are free, houses are free, and so on. That, that's that's got to be the world we aim for. Um I don't see that as universal basic income. I see that as just being a, a world of massive efficiency. How we get from here to there, that is the big challenge. And 
What concerns me is that I think it's extremely likely that most people will be jobless well before we have that level of efficiency, that level of everything being free. So we need a we need a path. We need a path which is sensible, feasible, and communicable, so that, that when everybody starts to lose their jobs, we don't all panic and society doesn't break down. Instead, our business and political leaders say, "Don't worry. Here's the plan. Here's how we're going to get to the to the Star Trek economy." Hmm. Well, it, it would seem that down this path of science fiction. Uh, before we go back to science fact, that there's a lot of things that, that need to happen for, for that to, to get there. And and there's multiple different ways that we can get there. So, for example, in this book, Snow Crash, I don't know if you've read it, um, it, you know, there's this concept of sort of a lot of virtualized economies or virtual existences and, and what can happen there. Do you think that there's a potential for a matrix moment where the 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 real is effectively replaced and makes us unemployable and the ai takes over but in the virtual we have a role and we're effectively farmers for virtual assets for the agi and in kind of what where do you play with these ideas that are sort of cutting edge in, in across multiple areas not just sort of the real dimension but the virtual dimensions and and any of the uh, sort of subsets of that mm. so there's two separate threads that need to be teased apart there. The matrix is really about the simulation hypothesis, which is the idea that unknowingly we are living in a video game, if you like, in a virtual reality world. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people have talked about this. Nick Bostrom has written uh, very interestingly about it. Elon Musk has talked about it. And since um, uh, your audience is, is a pretty technically and uh, science fiction literate audience, I'm, I'm happy to say, I think the chances are we do live in a simulated universe. I think it's the best possible explanation of the Fermi paradox. You know, we live in apparently this universe of 100 billion stars in our galaxies, a galaxy, 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe, and yet we don't see any signs of life out there. And this universe has been going for 13.7 billion years. It looks like life is pretty easy to start. It looks like it doesn't go away once you've started it. And it, and it looks like the, the progress towards intelligent life can be pretty quick so why don't we see any signs of somebody just blurting out pi with very powerful radiation sources or somebody moving galaxies around in a way that is clearly not natural we don't see any signs of it It strikes me that the most likely explanation of that is that we are in a simulated universe and the simulators didn't bother to paint in the aliens because it's too computationally expensive so the simulation hypothesis one thread the other thread that you raise is virtual reality, which is, uh, and this is sort of coming back to the real world and, and assuming that we don't live in a simulation or just that we carry on behaving like normal anyway, whether we are or not. I think it's extremely likely that people will spend a lot of their lives in virtual reality within the next few decades. Uh, within, a, within a generation, it's quite plausible that most people will spend most of their time in virtual reality because why wouldn't you? Once you have virtual reality, which makes your brain believe that the simulated world is absolutely as real as the real world, and it can be a lot better, it can be a lot more fun, the, the physical limitations on you are, are removed, that's a great place to spend time. And, th- and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. People worry that once we have fully immersive virtual reality, we'll become terribly antisocial and in some way wither away. That's not how humans behave. Every technology we have, the first thing we do with it, well, 
to be blunt, the first thing we do with it is find a way to use it for sex. But the next thing we do with it is find a way to use it to be social. We are intensely social beings. So we will find ways to make virtual reality social. So for instance, you want to watch your favorite baseball game and you want to watch it with your friend. Your friend happens to be in Chicago and you're in Singapore. Well, you can both watch it together and feel like you're next to each other in the stands, but actually you're a planet apart. That's a great example of how we can use virtual reality to be social. So I think, I think that's likely to happen. Hmm. And do you think that there's going to be limitations from a physiological point of view? Because the virtualization, as, it, as the drive for virtualization increases, assuming that we're not in a simulation, assuming that we are, in fact, um, going to continue in the path that we are right now, that that simulation will not end. Do you believe that biology will slow us down um, in, in our ability to sort of converge towards this maybe blended AI, blended human? And, uh, and do you think that there's ever a point where we'll be able to transfer consciousness from, from our human existence to an AI avatar, which some other science fiction authors have talked about that continues in perpetuity and perhaps has a consciousness transfer. Yeah. Um, yes, I do. I mean, this is going further ahead than what I tend to write about in my books. I mean, the economic singularity, I think, is a real political and social and economic challenge, which well, we we'll have come to back face. To we'll come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. But I, I'm, you know, I, I do also think about further future things, although, of course, you know, it might not be more than 100 years away. Uh, I think... There's no a priori reason why you couldn't upload a human mind into a computer. Now, there are people like Roger Penrose thinks that you can't because there's something ineffably uncomputable about consciousness. But I think that um, you, you, you could, in theory, upload a human mind into a computer, and then you would transcend your biological limit. You wouldn't have to die. You wouldn't have to be in only one place at any one time. You could travel around the galaxy at the speed of light and so on. And that strikes me as being a really wonderful thing to do. Uh, I fervently hope I'm around long enough to see it happen. Sadly, I think I may belong to the last generation of mortal humans who won't get to see that. But um, who knows if, if, if we're lucky. And I also think it's a necessary thing because if and when we create an artificial general intelligence which becomes a superintelligence, and we become the second smartest species on the planet, that's not only a very vulnerable position for us to be in, it's also probably a despair-inducing position for us to be in. The species which is in that position at the moment is a chimpanzee, and there's a few hundred thousand of them, seven billion of us. Their future depends entirely on us. They've got no say in what happens to them. The saving grace they have is that they don't know that. When we become the second smartest species on the planet, we will know about it, and I think it will make us despair unless we believe that we can join, merge with the smartest species, and that is by uploading. So I think that's our best possible and maybe our only long-term plausible future. And your, your interest in science fiction writers, I think the science fiction writer who deals best with this is a guy called Greg Egan, E-G-A-N. He's an Australian science fiction author. And my, fa my favorite book by him is called Diaspora, which is about a world where there are three categories of humans. Most humans live in virtual reality inside supercomputers. There's a second group of humans called Gleisner robots who are essentially cyborgs inhabiting huge and indestructible robots striding purposefully around the world. And then there's a third group called atomists who want nothing to do with all new technology. If you like, they're the Amish of the new world. And they are resolutely in human bodies and they die. They get old and they die. 
and everybody else thinks they're a bit crazy, but if that's what they want to do, then hey, no problem. Hmm. No, those are good. Those are good sort of examples, and and I and I also think of uh, Ramiz's book on Nexus, which has some similarities to to that and how humans could potentially evolve um, in terms of blended hardware, software, if you will. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there was a there was a, a statement that you've made in the past about are we spiritual machines? And you know, again, I know that we're kind of we're, we have debt in this conversation to bring it back to the economic singularity. Um, but on the topic of spiritual machines, do you see that there is something intrinsic to how we are and how humanity and, and life and creation of AI is defined that will will create a sort of a stop point for us and for AI because it will hit the point where it ceases to have meaning, you know, um, the meaning is such a large driver of, of, of why we do things and how things are done that, that all of this will come to a crashing halt because we lose that, that meaning and that we, all this fictional work around it, it becomes meaningless. I don't see any reason to think that would happen, but it has to be said that past see, seeing past the technological singularity, I mean, in maths and physics, part of the reason it's called that is you, you can't know what happened to the other side of it. You have an event horizon and the other side is opaque. And the technological singularity in particular is a bit like that. Uh, what the nature of a computer superintelligence would be is impossible for us to guess. It may even be impossible for us to understand if somehow somebody could come back to the future and explain it to us. We might still not be able to understand it in the way that an ant would not be able to understand a human mind because it doesn't have the the capacity. There's a there's an author, science fiction author called I think I think it was a Greg Bear book, in which somebody does that. They come back from the future. They try to explain what humanity is like in this future, and they simply can't. The vocabulary, the mental capacity of unaugmented humans, isn't isn't um, big enough to be able to deal with the concepts. So uh, what our minds would be like if we do merge with these superintelligences is unknowable. But I don't see any reason a priori why it should come to a grinding halt. In fact, I think meaning is likely to expand and become much, much bigger. You know, we have uh, in some ways quite a limited life. We're, we're stuck by gravity on this small rock in what looks to be a pretty unremarkable part of this universe. Uh, if we became superintelligences and were not constrained by that anymore, meaning could become a much bigger concept and uh, our lives could be immeasurably improved i think you know that that's what we should be aiming for i think so maybe if we bring it back to to the now um and taking that concept of meaning in a post-economic singularity world where um that is sort of the immediate threat um i know that a lot of the books you've written are kind of for this sort of 30 years time horizon and if i if i force your hand and push it towards a 10-year time horizon and start speculating at what those early indicators of that economic scenario is going to look like. Maybe you can walk us through, first of all, the tensions that exist currently uh, leading up to that between commercial and military interests. And then what we'll do is maybe continue down this sort of uh, train of thought down to how founders and startups that are being built today are driving towards that or can sort of uh, maybe steer clear of that or, or help innovate in a way that we overcome it. Sure. You're quite right. Uh, the full force of the economic singularity, I think, will hit us in 20 to 40 years. By that, I mean 
in that time period, most people will become unemployable because machines will be so efficient and so powerful. They will do all the jobs that we currently do. And my suspicion is that they will also do any new jobs that we might then invent. But I think we will see the foreshocks of that process much sooner. And I think it's going to happen in the first instance through self, because of self-driving cars, which are going to be introduced uh, in force. They're, ready for, they're sort of ready for prime time now. You can get in a self-driving taxi in Pittsburgh or in, in Singapore now, and there's 27 companies trialing self-driving cars on the streets of, of California. But around 2020, all the major motor fan- manufacturers will have them, and they will sweep across the commercial fleet very fast because human drivers contribute about a quarter of the cost of the, of the operation. And when machines can do that much more quickly and they don't get tired, they don't get cranky, they don't cause accidents, they will replace the, the human professional drivers. It's not at all clear what those human drivers are going to do as their next job. Now, everybody else will look at those drivers and see them becoming unemployed and it will scare them. It will scare all of us. We'll think, crikey, if it happens to drivers, <clears throat> what's to stop it happening to doctors and to lawyers and to warehouse workers and to software developers? Nothing. So from, say, 2025, somewhere around there, everybody will have, a visceral, will have visceral evidence that the economic singularity is real. And they will start to make economic and political decisions, which could be very damaging. And that's what I think we need to be thinking about right now. And I'm increasingly concerned that we're not thinking about it right now. And the reason we're not is partly that economists are saying this can't happen. It's the Luddite fallacy after the Luddite movement in the early Industrial Revolution when people went around smashing up looms because they thought they were putting them out of work. Economists are right to say that automation in the past has not caused lasting unemployment. But the question is, is it different this time? And I think it is different this time because the automation we're going to get in the future is cognitive automation. What we had in the past was, was mostly mechanical automation. Uh, so I think we need to figure out, in case it happens, how do we decouple income from jobs? So, you know, I think there are some, some really serious near-term implications. And I'm trying to encourage people to think seriously about this and to think seriously about what that world might look like and how we get from here to there. And I think it's becoming urgent. That job is becoming urgent. Um, You then asked what uh, people running companies, people running startups should be doing with their own organizations now. Now, This is something that that I'm not as well placed to advise people on, but it does seem to me that increasingly as we go forward, artificial intelligence is going to be the primary source of competitive advantage. And so if you're not deploying it in your business, you're very likely to get disrupted by somebody else who is. So I think, you know, if I was still running businesses, I would definitely be thinking, how do I deploy artificial intelligence in my business? How are other people going to deploy it and threaten me with disruption? And, and that makes sense. And that, that kind of starting, you're starting to see that across certain industries like healthcare. And there's probably other ones, as, as you mentioned, for example, commercial fleets. And you bring up a lot of very good points. Um, and one of the challenges is that those points intersect with economic thinking about growth. Uh, in his book, Homo Deus, uh, Yuval talks about the, the sort of human drive for growth and how growth has enabled for uh, a lot of the innovation that we have today. And, and capping that growth um, is, is kind of almost impossible at this point. But the huge 
counter argument to that is that the ecology in which we operate is being increasingly uh, compromised because of that necessity for growth. How do you see the role of AGI or or potentially um, other other elements around it uh, marrying the limitations that we have in the environment we we live in and how companies can can manage that uh, versus just uncontrolled growth at the cost of uh, sort of a dystopian future. Mm. Well, I don't think we're in a situation of uncontrolled growth. You know, the world economy grows at somewhere around three or four percent a year. Um, and I think that's a good thing because what economic growth means is more people get well off and that means less people are poor. And in the last 20 years, there's been an amazing economic miracle. And some people say it's just China, but it's not just China. Uh, all around the world, many parts of the world, people have been dragged up from appalling poverty where starvation and early death from disease was the norm into something approaching a middle-class life where everybody has a pretty good chance of living a full term and having a decent education and not having to starve. Now, that is just a good thing. Obviously, uh, we have polluted lots of parts of the world and there are all sorts of environmental impacts. But I think increasingly as our technology becomes more powerful, those effects will be mitigated and even reversed. It's clear that um, thanks to solar power particularly, energy is going to get cheaper and less ecologically damaging to produce. And that's that's got to be a great thing. When we have machines producing houses and cars and clothes much more effectively and efficiently than humans do, again, the impact on the environment will be less. So I think as we get um, smarter, our ecological footprint will get will get less. And then, of course, when you get to superintelligence and we have a being on this planet or a set of beings, perhaps, which are a million times smarter than Albert Einstein, they will solve our ecological problems because those are essentially engineering problems and they're soluble. Yeah, they're soluble. But um, I guess one of the challenges is when you have extinction. I, well, I guess you, you could I could answer my own question by saying taking the DNA of an extinct animal and bring it back to life. I guess we can we can play around that. I think we're just dealing with some very interesting challenges in the short term. And perhaps if we move away from the ecology and, and move into uh, employment, which is kind of uh, the, the, the key element of the economic singularity, what would you do today to start influencing labor laws to prepare for the singularity? I wouldn't do anything to labor laws. What I would do is is get as many people as possible to think seriously about these two questions. Will machines replace human jobs? And if so, what does an economy look like in which income is separated from jobs? Those are two vast questions and too few people are taking them seriously enough because of this uh, Luddite, this, this um, belief that it's the Luddite fallacy. I, I believe the economists are guilty of the reverse Luddite fallacy, which is the belief that automation cannot cause widespread lasting unemployment. So the first thing I think we should do is have, um, I wouldn't say education, but a, a, a much greater awareness of the, of the likelihood of this happening. And then have all around the world groups of smart people thinking about the different scenarios that might pan out and how we would best navigate each of those scenarios. 
So, you know, scenario planning for the economic singularity. I think that that's the stage we're at at the moment. We need to take the problem seriously and do scenario planning for it. Um, where do you think, if, if we can take some elements of what we know are happening today, you know, we, I know that in the past you've, you've mentioned, you know, the roles that Facebook and Google have in owning and creating a lot of what is the assets around AI today. Um, what, what's it look like moving that into public ownership? What's that look like when you separate the economy uh, from jobs and employment? What's that look like for you with how that becomes a mechanism for people to contact and integrate with these companies, but not necessarily be employees of these companies, not necessarily make a living from these companies, and yet we're seeing the early elements of that. I know it's kind of a, a long-winded question, but it's it's how is the elements of public ownership of assets, non-employability by key IP generators, and at the same time, driving towards this separation between the economy and jobs. Mm, sure. So what's what's the role of the of the tech giants and the AI the AI powered tech giants? And and you know, you're right, they are the people who are deploying deep learning at the moment, which is the most powerful brand, if you like, of, of artificial intelligence. Uh, and indeed there's been a joke in Silicon Valley for a while that deep learning is a bit like teenage sex and that everybody's talking about it but nobody's actually doing it. Um, well, there are people doing it and they are called Google and Facebook and Microsoft and so on. They're trying to make it available for other companies um, and clearly what's increasingly going to happen is that cloud services like Amazon Web Services, which is the market leader at the moment, but Microsoft is entering it strongly with Azure and Google's um, entering it strongly. Those cloud services are going to be increasingly uh, bearing value-add AI services. So more and more businesses will be able to use cutting-edge deep learning. Um, looking further ahead, if we do get to this world in which there's an increasingly small number of people who are still employed, uh, the money that gets paid to the rest of us, because we're going to need money to live, and we're going to need quite a lot of money to live well, the money that gets paid for the rest of us will have to come from the people who are producing the goods and services that are being paid for. And that means taxes. And that means taxing Google and Facebook and Baidu and Alibaba. Now, they, those people may have a choice. They may say, well, the hell with that. We're not going to be taxed at 99%. We're going to position ourselves in the Cayman Islands or some impregnable fortress island in, in, in the middle of the Pacific that can't be attacked. And we're simply going to stay here and not, not pay taxes. Um, then they would become pariahs and the rest of us would do very poorly indeed and that would be a very bad outcome for the world. Or they might say, you know what, we want the world to do well, we want our species to do well, yeah, we'll agree, we, we accept. The logic of this is we will have to be heavily taxed in order to uh, pay for everybody else to have a good income. Or perhaps their assets will have to pass into public ownership. Now, as somebody who spent 30 years in business and uh, has observed at first hand what happened the other side of the Iron Curtain. I spent time there before the Berlin Wall came down and I've spent time there since. It's pretty clear that nationalization tends not to work. I wrote in my book, The Economic Singularity, about how perhaps the productive assets, and this is in a fairly far distant future, I mean, maybe 40 years away, perhaps the assets could be put into public ownership and owned through the blockchain in some way so that they're not state-owned assets with all the inefficiency and corruption that that tends to lead to. But these things are very difficult questions, and that's why I think we need to start 
thinking about them carefully now. In the long term, I think a world in which there's a small number of people who own all the productive assets is unsustainable. Uh, Yuval Harari that you mentioned, his books are terrific, uh, Sapiens and Homo Deus, great books. He talks about the scenario of the gods and the useless. So you have a small number of people who make all the money and they are gods because they have privileged access to the rapidly uh, developing new technologies which augment them as 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 humans and they become a non-human post-human species the rest of us remain as unaugmented humans or we're being augmented much more slowly because we don't have such quick access to these new technologies and that's a very very dangerous scenario we should something we should avoid um so in the very long run it seems to me that the assets probably need to be in no ownership or public ownership in in some non-governmental way. Okay. Well, we always like to wrap things up with uh, some interesting, fun questions. Uh, and and in that spirit, the first one is: if you were in the job of a venture capitalist today, what would be the first startup that you would be looking to put your money in today? Like it, you can pick a specific one, or you can just make one up, but something that is kind of within the realm of what is being created today. What would be that startup? Sure. Uh, it would be. It would be a business which was helping large companies, but also small companies, work out how to deploy artificial intelligence in their in, in their operations. Uh, I I chair a um, a conference called AI Europe, which is about how businesses can deploy artificial intelligence now, uh, and it's the subject that's on the the, the the lips of every CEO. How do I use AI? Every you know everybody needs to know that, and so somebody who could provide really good, clear, simple, practical advice about that would be a great business to invest in. Great. So what's one thing that you used to strongly believe in that you now think you're fundamentally misguided about all along? What have I changed my mind about recently? That's an interesting question. I can't think of anything I've changed my mind about very recently. But when I was much younger, I was very left-wing. And I stopped being very left-wing as soon as I started working in in the real world and i know that sounds terribly patronizing but um, and, and cliched but it's true I, I when i started work at the bbc i was actually working on uh, eastern europe and i saw how awfully badly run those countries were and it changed my politics completely okay and maybe this is a very good question to ask a science fiction writer because you know we look back now at slavery and we're appalled and shocked that that even was excusable and possible and rational uh, by the, the minds of the day. What will people look back at us 50 years from now and be shocked and appalled by? Well, very possibly um, our treatment of animals. Uh, Yuval Harari spends about the first third of his book, Humbadeus, uh, in a diatribe about this. Um, I'm a part-time vegetarian. My son's vegetarian, and he lives with me and my partner alternate weeks and so when he's with us we're, we're vegetarian and we're perfectly happy with that I, I confess that my partner and i we slip back into meat eating when he's not here um but so that's that's one possible thing that they um they might look back on us with with some uh disgust yeah i think the other thing that they will be amazed at is that is how tolerant we were of death death is a design flaw in our species which we should be working on solving much more uh, aggressively. I, I donate money to Orbit Gray's organization, SENS, since, um, because I think we can solve death and we should be spending a lot of resources on it. 
Um, well, thanks for sharing that insight. Hopefully we will have a, a way of overcoming death or at least preserving our consciousness into another, uh, into another realm, virtual realm perhaps. And with that, thanks for joining us, Callum. Really appreciate your thoughts. My great pleasure. Thank you. And until next time, guys. Bye.